The natural compass of your heart is set to a hard north of self-righteousness. And every single day it wants to go back there. Every day you want to believe that in some way you're good and in some way you're contributing to your standing before God. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to the second part of The Gospel Tragedy from Pastor Paul Twiss, taken from the New Testament Gospel of Mark, Chapter 10. This series is focusing on a truth found in Shakespeare's tragedy, Macbeth, that life can simply be full of, quote, sound and fury signifying nothing. How does this verse in the play relate to the many in life, even in our Bible-believing churches who remain without Christ? Well, it is certain you can have lots of accomplishments in your life. You can accumulate much, lots of money, plenty of prestige, lots of things. And as the old joke goes, you can be, quote, a legend in your own mind. On the other hand, in the light of eternity, has it really amounted to anything? Or will it, as the bard wrote, signify nothing? Here's part two of The Gospel Tragedy. He didn't come to Jesus and say, woe is me. He didn't come to Jesus and say, have mercy on me for my sin. He came to Jesus and said, give me something more to do because I've kept the law and I need something more. He didn't understand that his good deeds, his zealous law keeping were as filthy rags before a holy God. He didn't understand that you can't offer Christ anything, that you can't contribute to your own righteousness. When Jesus said only God is good, I mean, that fell on deaf ears. That just went right by him. That didn't divert his eyes off the law. That comment was wasted on this man. His eyes were veiled with the facade of self-righteousness. His vision was clouded with the fog of good deeds. His heart is tricked by the lie of his own merit. And Jesus knew this. Jesus knew this about the man. Did you see how when he gave the commandments, he went straight to the second half of the Ten Commandments. He went straight to the second tablet. He went to those commandments that relate to other people, which externally it's possible to keep. I mean, Jesus didn't say, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, because he knew that this man wasn't even thinking in that realm. Jesus didn't give him that. When, when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount and he started to break down the law and to talk to people about relating to God and your heart attitude underneath all the commandments, this guy was out of town. This guy wasn't even there. He didn't think in that way. The man was good and he wanted his goodness to be the basis of his righteousness. And that's the very first hint of tragedy in this gospel account. Unless you think that you are beyond this, that you are in no way like this man, you need to understand that this is the default position of the human soul. The natural compass of your heart is set to a hard north of self-righteousness. And every single day it wants to go back there. Every day you want to believe that in some way you're good and in some way you're contributing to your standing before God. You know, just, just a few verses down, Jesus is essentially having this same conversation with his disciples. 
as James and John come to him and they say, Jesus, can we sit on your left and your right hand in glory? You work through the narrative, you see that they think they can offer something to Christ. They think they've got something going for them, that they've done some good, such that they can sit beside Jesus in glory. And Jesus said, I didn't come to be served. You, you can't offer me anything. I came to serve. I came to, to give you my righteousness. We don't like the truth that we're wicked. And we try and get away from the truth that we're depraved. I remember I saw this played out so clearly when I was very young in the faith. I was, I was about a year old as a Christian. I was serving on an aircraft carrier. Before I served on submarines, I was on aircraft carriers. And we were out in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And every Sunday we used to have church. And lots of people would come. And the captain of the ship, he was a man who was, who was going places in the military. I mean, he was a man who really hadn't put a foot wrong. Uh, in fact, when we were away on that trip, we had received a signal to say that on return, he would be promoted to, to admiral. He was a man who, who had gold on his shoulder out to here and, and medals to follow. He had a lot of good things going for him. Well, one Sunday, the chaplain was flown off um, on compassionate grounds. And it was known that I was a Christian, so they asked if I would take the service. Now, I was a year old in the faith. I really didn't know what I was doing. I said, yes. I didn't know how to preach. I knew enough to open my Bible and to say that you're all sinners and your good deeds won't save you and you need a savior. And I remember so clearly on that Sunday, standing before everyone that came and just doing my best to preach a short gospel message. We were in Isaiah 53. And I remember at one point locking eyes with this captain this good man, and I remember looking at him in the eyes as I was saying that you, your good deeds won't save you, and I remember he, he could not hold my gaze. His eyes dropped to the floor. Now, now, what was going on there? Was he intimidated by the authority of the man before him? I was the lowest of the low. I mean, I was right down the bottom. He didn't have any regard for me. I mean, was he convicted by the, the incredible rhetoric of the preacher? I didn't have a clue. I didn't know what I was doing. The gospel truth that your good deeds count as nothing before God was piercing his heart, and he knew it. You see, scene one of this gospel tragedy is a warning. It's a warning that we would not be like this man, that we would not find any worth in good things, in our ministry responsibilities, in our financial success, in our well-behaved children, whatever it is, whatever it is you take pride in, we must find no value in those because they count for nothing in terms of righteousness before God. Rather, you need to fight. You need to get on your knees day after day and pray and teach and preach to yourself that without Christ, you are totally wicked. Without any work of Christ in your life, you are completely depraved. You have nothing to offer the Savior. If you do not do this and you leave your, your motives unchecked, and this idea of self-righteousness creeps into your life, then scene two of the gospel tragedy starts to become a reality for you. Read the text with me, verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, you lack one thing. Go, 
Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So we're on our way to Jerusalem. Jesus has set his face towards Calvary, towards the cross, that he would die. A man runs up to him, throws himself down before Jesus. He asks how he gets eternal life. He declares himself to be righteous. And in response, Jesus looks at this man. The, the verb is intent. He, he intently looks at this man. The all-knowing, all-seeing son of God who would one day return in judgment, who would one day face this man again with eyes like flaming fire to judge him. In this instant, he looks intently at him, seeing everything, knowing everything that's going on in his soul, knowing every inclination of his heart. He knows it all. He looks at this weak man kneeling before him with all the crowds watching, and he loves him. There's no rebuke. He doesn't chastise him. Mark says he loves him. He had a love for him. He had, he had compassion for this man. He, he wants to help this man. Now let's zoom out. Just before this account, Jesus is talking about the children. And he says, these are the ones. The, the kingdom of heaven belongs to these. He says, you need to come to me like a child. If you want to inherit eternal life, you come to me like a child. You come to me with, with faith. You, 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 don't, you don't bring anything. He says, you, you don't have an agenda. You don't have any presuppositions. You don't bring something to me. You come like a child with nothing, with empty hands. And then immediately after, he says to the man, you lack something. Jesus says, you come like a child with nothing. You come with empty hands. And you lack something. You see, the man lacked the nothingness that the children had. The man lacked their empty hands. He, he was bringing something. He had this money. He had this money and Jesus said, you've got this stuff, this thing. And you're holding on to your money and you love your money. And you can't let go of your money and your money will send you to hell. He said, go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then you can come and follow me. That's how you have eternal life. Now, we mustn't understand the money is a bad thing. You see, we, we're tempted to think that he was a greedy man or a deceitful man. But we know from scene one that he's a good man. And we know that the custom of this day was such that if you had money, it was considered that God had blessed you, that you received God's favor. His money was just another one of his good things. See, scene one, we see that he's a good man with lots of good things going on. And scene two, we just progress to one particular good thing, namely his money. And Mark tells us he went away disheartened. Two times that word is used in the New Testament. Once here, another time to describe the weather. Gloomy weather. Mark says his, his soul was overcast. His heart was darkened because of what Jesus said. Can you see the irony of this text? He comes to the right man. He asks the right question. He gets the right response and he goes away sorrowful. With these words, the one who holds the keys to eternal life pronounced this man's death sentence. As he told him, as he gave him the right answer, so he declared the man's death sentence. And the funeral bells start to sound, and the coffin bearers ready themselves, and the grave is dug. Because, you see, we don't hear from this man again in Scripture. We don't hear what happened after this account, but we can assume that if nothing changed after this account, then he's perishing in hell today. This is not a parable. 
This is not a made-up story. This is fact. This man lived. He interacted with Jesus this day, and he went away sorrowful. And if nothing changed in his life, he is perishing in hell today. Jesus told him the key to eternal life, and with those words, he pronounced his death sentence. He went away sorrowful. See the irony. See the tragedy of this text. This is the only man in all of the gospel accounts that comes to Jesus and goes away sorrowful. There are many that come to Jesus sorrowful, and they go away joyful. And this man goes away sorrowful because he couldn't let go of his money, because he had some good things going on for him, because he found his righteousness in these good things. And there was one particular good thing that had come up, and he had started to cherish it so much that he couldn't let go of it anymore. Jesus was inviting him to take hold of eternal life, and the man couldn't do it because he was holding on to his money. I kind of had this message uh, ready to go. I'd been working on this text for a number of reasons, and so the sermon was almost there. But I, I was hesitant. I was hesitant because I thought, well, just a few weeks ago, I was sharing First Kings 18, and, and the message there was to put away your idols, to put away your, your, your bales, to follow after the one true God. And I thought, in many ways, this is a similar message. You know, I can't just preach the same message. They'll think I'm a one-trick pony. <laughs> I thought, I need to say something else. A friend um, quickly humbled me and he said, Paul, they won't remember your message on First Kings 18. <laughs> right? Everyone, everyone forgets what the preacher said by Monday morning. But more to the point... This message, as much as there are parallels, I mean, certainly this thing, the money, had become something of an idol for this man, such that he wasn't able to follow after the one true God. There are certainly parallels, but, but it's altogether different. I mean, this is flipped on its head because this man was earnestly seeking after God. This is not out-and-out -out idolatry. He's not turning away from God in order that he might go after something else. He is desperately seeking eternal life, running up to Christ in an undignified way, in front of everyone, asking, what do I need to do? And of all the good things in his life, he's holding on to one of them. It's the very things that he thinks might secure him eternal life that are stopping him receiving it. The very good things in his life that he is counting on for his righteousness before God on the day of judgment are the very things that are stopping him receiving eternal life. And he was willing to forfeit the invitation because of these good things. The good man was a godless man. And so he went away sorrowful. Now we need to feel the eternal weight of this text. We need to understand the utmost importance of learning to count all things as loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. We need to understand the danger of delighting in any good work or any good thing such that it might become very precious to you, such that you might not be able to let go. There might come a time when you don't even realize it, but you can't let go of this good thing. And all of a sudden, you can't obey Christ anymore. Simon is a warning not to count anything of your own as righteous. Scene two is the natural outworking of that. It's the natural unraveling of that. It's the terrifying truth that if there is any good thing which hinders you from following Christ completely, then you will not inherit eternal life. And you say, oh, but Paul, this is just for the unbeliever. You say, this is the message you bring to the outreach meeting. 
You need to get rid of that thinking. You must not dare think that. You know, one of the most dangerous teachings in the church today is that if, if you made a, a commitment, that you prayed a prayer at some point in the past, then you're in and you're good and there's no need for any change in your life and it doesn't really matter how you live because you made this commitment. That is not the message of salvation throughout the New Testament. We're told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're told to make our calling and our election sure. Even in this text, Jesus is talking present tense. Come and follow after me again and again and again. Follow after me every single day. There is a striving and a a perseverance all through the New Testament that is so tightly knit with your salvation that if it is not evident, then you have no reason to believe that you are saved. If you are not striving continually, there is no reason to think that you have not become center stage in this gospel tragedy. If there is no fruit being born and no ongoing commitment to Christ and his commandments, then this reality, this gospel tragedy is becoming a reality for you. Regardless of however zealous you may have been to follow after Christ in the past, regardless of your past record in the church, we need to feel the weight of this text. You cannot be playing games with the good things in your life. There must be a fight to declare yourself as utterly dependent upon Christ for your righteousness. There must be an understanding that every good thing with which he blesses you does not contribute to your righteousness. It is not the foundation of your standing before him. And therefore, you must be so careful to start clinging on to it and enjoying it. Every good thing is as filthy rags before a holy God. There's nothing you can offer him. Is there any self-examination? Is there any asking of these questions? That great Puritan spiritual discipline of self-examination. I feel like we've, we've lost the art of dissecting our souls to question our motives. As we're so eager to, to fill another ministry commitment, to be seen at church, what's the motives? We're too busy looking at the good things that we're doing. We're too busy enjoying the good things that we can show God and show others. And that's why it hurts so much when those things start to crumble. I know for myself, when things don't go my way, it really hurts. And why is that? Is it because I'm, I'm putting my, my hope in these things? And when people don't affirm them, when other people don't see your good deeds, why does that hurt so much? Could it be because that's what you're putting your hope in? And that's where really your righteousness is lying. Ever so steadily, slowly, gradually, quietly, the compass resets itself. And before long, we find that we're making excuses for our disobedience. Before long, we find that we're justifying our negligence to Christ's commands. We're trying somehow to say that it's okay to live a half-hearted life. Examine yourselves. Question whether there isn't any good thing which is stopping you from following after Christ completely. Scene one, the good man. Scene two, the godless man. And the narrative ends there. We don't hear from him again in scripture. We don't know what happened afterwards with this man. The gospel tragedy is over. But there is a third scene. We don't get to witness it, but Jesus hints at it in the text. There is a third scene. 
whereby we can be assured that, that if you would put away these good things, if you would not dare find your righteousness in anything but Christ alone, if you would not cling to any one thing, but you would lay it all down such that you follow him completely, continually, obeying him, taking up your cross and submitting to him, whatever the cost, Jesus says there will be treasure in heaven for you. He says there will be treasure in heaven. If you would understand the total and all-consuming call of discipleship, as Jesus was explaining it on the way to Jerusalem, as he shows it to this man, if we would understand it and embrace it, not daring to enjoy anything good for our own sake, for our righteousness, then you'll stand before Christ one day on the shores of glory. You would see him in his splendor. You would see the holes in his hands as he was pierced for your good things, as he was pierced for your righteous deeds and he would there welcome you into glory where there would be treasure in heaven there'd be no more pain and no more sorrow no more hurt and no more sin no more weakness no more tears and no more suffering no more death all gone only everlasting and deep-seated and resounding and unshakable joy in christ who is your righteousness, and there you would be with him, dining with the king and sitting with the king forever. Treasure that is unimaginable. Treasure that we can't comprehend. Treasure that we can't see, but is most definitely there and laid up for us if we would but have it. Treasure that is waiting for us if we would just have it. He was the good man, but he was the godless man, and he went away sorrowful. May there be no good thing in your life which hinders you from following after Christ, but that you would deny anything for your own righteousness. You would understand your righteousness is in him. You would not cling to anything, but you would continue to follow after Christ every day and one day be with him in glory where there'll be treasure in heaven. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you that Christ us righteousness. Lord, would you so work in our hearts that we would put aside all good things. Oh Lord, that we would not count any good thing for ourselves before you. That we would not trust in these things. We would put them aside that we might follow after Christ, obeying his commandments, trusting in him alone for our standing before you, and that we would all be with him one day in glory, and there's treasure in heaven. Lord, I ask these things in his name. Amen. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Ever look in an antique store and see old photographs of people? Who were they? Surely not someone that means anything to you. How will it be when someone 150 years from now sees a picture of you? What will the significance be? In the light of eternity, nothing. That is the tragedy of living for only life on earth. It eventually ends, and you have all of eternity to think about it. How is the play of your life ending? Is it a tragedy, or do you prefer a much, much better ending? If you'd like to learn more about having your life on earth end in joy and only the beginning of an eternal pleasure, come to our website, timelesstruthtoday.org, then select Broadcasts, where you'll find an abundance of teaching to help you better understand God's marvelous gospel. And it's all free for the listening. You know, if this program has a positive impact on your relationship with Jesus, will you make a financial gift? 
Join many others as a team of listener supporters who are a part of what God is doing through this outreach ministry to reach thousands of souls with the good news of Jesus. To make your gift of any size, simply go to our homepage, TimelessTruthToday.org, and select Donate. Thanks for your consideration. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. Hope you'll join us tomorrow for part one, a new series titled, Jesus Begins His Ministry, in which Pastor Paul goes to Matthew the Apostle for irrefutable evidence that Jesus is the true Messiah of Israel. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today. Today.